0: Romans chapter 2. We've been in a series that we've entitled Hypocrite, looking at uh, the second chapter of Romans. As uh, many of you know, we're taking a chapter uh, of Romans uh, a year, and uh, we're in the second installment of that, looking at this incredible uh, chapter that speaks uh, to us. We learned in Romans chapter 1 that God hates sin he hates gross immorality and we all enjoy uh, uh, that uh, sense that God hates sin because he's holy and we say well we're holy too, God and we we don't like that kind of sin either but Romans 2 comes in and it hits us right between the eyes because God doesn't say I just I don't like the gross sin but I don't like the what you would call the righteous if you will sin the cleaned up sin I hate it just as much as I hate the sins of Romans chapter 1. And so we get uh, to Romans chapter 2, and we get to our passage that we'll be dealing with today, uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. So let's uh, stand as we read uh, and look at God's Word this morning, and then we'll get into our uh, message. This is what uh, Paul tells uh, the people in Rome and to us today. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do you not teach yourself you who preach against stealing do you not steal you who say that people should not commit adultery do you rob uh, do you commit adultery you who abhor idols do you rob temples you who brag about the law do you dishonor god by breaking the law as it is written god's name is blasphemed among the gentiles because of you father god we come before you and again lord we deal with a text uh, that we don't want to hear about because it deals with people who feel moral people who feel that based on their achievements and based on their activity are holy in your sight and yet lord as we are going to learn uh, these people in romans 2 were hypocrites They preached one thing and lived another. They told others by which the standard, by which they should live, and did not hold to that standard themselves. Father, we fall prey to that sin as well. Though we are saved by grace, we rarely show grace. Though we look forward to You not judging us, we judge others. What an applicable text to us today. It's easy, Lord, for us to hear a text like this and to point at major failures and hypocrites within the realm of ministry and within the realm of the Christian life. But, Father, let us look nowhere else but to ourselves this morning. Let our gaze not go upon anyone else but our own hearts and the hypocritical thinking that we have in our own lives. So, Lord, we ask that your Spirit would come today, convict us of it, Remind us of your grace and that when we ask for forgiveness, you're faithful to forgive us. So, Lord, guide us this morning. Give me the words to speak and let them be your words, we ask, and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. I want to do something a little different this morning. I. Usually uh, uh, go right away uh, hitting my three points and that I'm going to give you a long introduction so you don't need to be worried about when I get to my points because the points will go rapid fire and then we'll hit some points of application before we close our time. Why is it important for a church to look at Romans chapter 2? Why is it so important that we deal with difficult texts like the one that we find today? not the one that points to the world and their sin, but to us in ours. The problem is, and the answer to that is simple, because the problem in the church is that the church, Village Bible Church, in fact, has within its walls hypocrites. People who say that they live one way, people who amen and talk about the greatness of Jesus, with great fervor and excitement on Sunday and yet live a double life living completely contrary to that of which they amend on that Sunday before and the world hates it the world hates when christians are hypocritical in fact according to a 1998 gallup study the largest reason for people being turned off from the church wasn't because of service times. It wasn't because that the services weren't exciting enough. It wasn't that the churches weren't offering enough programs. It wasn't that the church is even unfriendly. But according to this Gallup study about 10 years ago, the largest reason for people being turned off by the church is because of the hypocrisy of church goers and pastors and leaders. In fact, I came across a blog written by a uh, disenfranchised individual who involved themselves in church for some time. And he gives the reason why he's given up on the church, why he's given up on Jesus. And this is what he says, and I quote, I am always astounded at the wide dichotomy between how Christians live and how Jesus told them to live. Christians who tell you with a straight face that they do their best to follow the teachings of Jesus often live in complete contradiction with those very teachings. It seems as if they enjoy doing so. It is truly outstanding. And I can't think of any other modern life where perception and reality are so completely and irreparably disconnected. He goes on to ask the question of every Christian that reads his blog. And he says, I want you to ask five questions, five commands that Jesus gave and how we as Christians live contrary to them. A missionary named, I believe, Stanley Jones once had an audience with Gandhi in India. And he said, you quote Jesus so many times, Gandhi. Why is it that you are not a Christian? And Gandhi replied, I love Jesus. Jesus has incredible words. I believe that there is, Jesus was the greatest one to ever walk the sod of this earth. And he says, but Jesus isn't the reason why I'm not a Christian. Christians are the reason I'm not a Christian. Now you may say, well, come on, Gandhi. You can't base your faith on what other people do, but sadly, the unbelieving world does. Are the unbelievers right in their thinking of us, in their assessment of us? Is it true that we as Christians are hypocrites? Are they being too hard on us? Are they expecting too much of us? I mean, are, are unbelievers really expecting us to be perfect? I don't think so. But they want us to be truthful. They want us to be people of integrity. A Christian Uh, is a hypocrite not when they struggle with sin or because they have a past Of sin in their life. That's not being a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who acts who pretends Now understand I struggle with sin every day In fact, my last week's message is all about how I fall to the issue of pride when people encourage me how I fall to the issue of pride thinking that God needs me to accomplish his celestial uh, purpose And I fall to sin. And there are times I don't act like a Christian. But that doesn't mean you're a hypocrite. doesn't mean I'm a hypocrite. Because we are striving to live holy and upright lives when we fail at doing that doesn't mean we're hypocrites. So what is it then that irritates the unbelieving world so much about Christianity? Is it that we fail? No. It's that we talk a big game and don't live according to the same rules by which we judge. I know I'm in a position where many unbelievers would say, but Tim, you're a hypocrite without even knowing me. And the reason why is we've had far too many preachers in this world who have spoken about judgment and God's judgment of sin. And when they fall to sin, not expecting the same judgment to be placed on them. We can't look far back in, in the world of, of preachers uh, to know about a very well-known preacher in the United States who spoke against great, greatly about the acts of homosexuality and how evil it was and how we needed to stop it at every front only to then be identified as one who was practicing that same way. And we saw the blogs, we saw the newspaper reports, we saw the public opinion. This man was a hypocrite. I will tell you they're right in their assessment. This issue of hypocrisy is one that we have to deal with. We as Christians cannot live double lives. We can't act like a Christian one day and then live totally contrary to that the next. In fact, the word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that literally describes an actor who wears masks. Think about that for a moment. Do you wear a mask, whether on Sunday or on Monday? Which one really are you? Do you put on the Christian faith to come to church on Sunday to make sure that all the people around you think that you're as Christian as you say you are? Or is it on Monday when you take off uh, or you put on the mask of the world and you try to hide the Christian that you are on the inside. The Greeks would talk about this idea of being a hypocrite, of one who would stand on a stage and act like someone else and putting masks on. And we find ourselves so many times as Christians doing that. Well, why is this message needed this morning? There are five reasons I want you to write it down. The reasons why we need to talk about hypocrisy. The first one is, write this down, the reputation of the church is at stake. If Village Bible Church wants to have a vibrant testimony in the community around us, then we must not have hypocrisy as the defining uh, point of this church. When the people of the Fox Valley area hear the word Village Bible Church, and they think a group of hypocrites, it would be better that we close the door than try to uh, go on with one more service because we have failed in our testimony. The second thing is the character of God is at stake. We must recognize that when we are hypocrites, we put, without even knowing it, we put an accusation to God Himself that He too is a hypocrite. Because when we say we we, we want to live like Jesus, and we wear bracelets on our wrists that say "What would Jesus do," and we have fish on the back of our cars, and then when the going gets tough or or the popularity test is is at hand, and we live a different way, and we think, well, I, I won't I, I won't be so Christian in this circumstance. Don't ever think that you have disconnected yourself from all those Christian things that you have when it's convenient. God's character is at stake. The third thing that we see and the reason why we need to do is that the souls of men are at stake. We are to live upright and holy lives. Why? To show that we're changed, to show the story of grace in our lives. But if we live a double life, nobody will want to be a Christian. And we begin to put obstacles in the way of unbelievers souls are at stake we got to get this thing right we need to understand as i said already there are now hypocrites within the church not just in the pew but in the pulpits not just uh ones that attend church but those who lead the church we have to deal with it And that's why it's important that we know how to deal with this sin. That's the final thing. It's so important that we understand how to deal with hypocrisy because the world is watching how we deal with it. So what does Paul do in this text? He takes us in chapter 2 and he focuses his time on three camps. In Romans chapter 2, he deals first of all with the -the run-of-the-mill moralist. Uh, no particular nationality, no particular religion, just the one who thinks better of themselves because they don't fall to the gross sins of Romans chapter 1. But then he moves into the ignorant, towards the ignorant Gentile moralist, the one who doesn't have the law of God, and yet thinks that because he lives a good life, that he will escape the judgment. And then in the text that we looked at today, verses 17 through 24, he deals with the Jewish, religious Jew who's a moralist. Now understand this, three different types of people who think three similar ways of themselves. They may come from a different country. They may come uh, with less knowledge than the other or more knowledge than some. But what we see is a similar outcome, judgment. Romans 2 is about judgment. But Romans 2 is not about judgment of gross sin. It's about the judgment of people who think they're better than everybody else and yet live in sin just like the rest. And so Paul says there's judgment that is coming. So Paul speaks to this last group. We looked at at the beginning part of it last week and we saw the pride and the presumption of these religious Jews. And he looked at this last group and he begins to massage their ego this group was had to have been happy where Paul was at because they're a lot like us in, in our evangelical world who sit there and love it when when Paul or the preacher, if you will, preaches condemnation and damnation on sinners. And we say, yes, amen. I listen to a, a preacher on the radio. It sometimes absolutely drives me nuts because it's like what his desire is is, is to work his congregation up into a frenzy on how evil the world is. And how bad they are. And then he talks as if uh, we're so far apart from that. And he says how great we are as Christians. I would hope that I could say that at times. But the sad thing is when you look at any study that is done, excuse me, there is very little difference between the believer and the non-believer when it comes to practicing the faith. Divorce levels are similar. Issues of fornication and adultery are similar. And yet we're there beating on the pulpits, talking about how great God is and how wonderful we live in this world. We don't fall to things like that. We've got the right understanding of belief and yet we live just like them. So look at what Paul says. He says now in verse 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, they perked up, yes, We're God's chosen people. God loves us. He's in a covenant relationship with us. He says, if you rely on the law, yes, Lord, we do rely on the law. We love the law of Moses. We follow it. When there's feasts, we have feasts. When there's a time for temple, we head to the synagogues and we're a part of all that. That's us too. If you brag about your relationship with God, oh yes, we've got a close walk with our God in heaven I wonder if they had a Jewish song like we did and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. I wonder if we had that back in the day. Yeah, we've got this great relationship with God. If you know his will and approve what is superior, yes. We know how those Gentiles can clean up their act. We know how to to fix things up, how to live the right life. We've got the answers. That's, That's us too, Paul. Keep preaching. We love you. This is great. He says, if you're convinced you're a guide for the blind, we are. Those blind Gentiles need us, God's chosen people. If you're a light of those who are in dark, yeah, it's our job to enlighten them. If you're an instructor to the foolish, oh, those foolish, foolish people. We need to teach them what is right. We need to teach the infants, those that are ignorant of the fact why because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth oh man we've we've arrived we've got it notice in the NIV what happens after the word truth if you've got an NIV bible what is there big long line shows the picture of a pause you're all that you got all that going on i could just see paul preaching this text as he's writing this letter and the people in the pews, uh, if you will, sitting there saying, that's us, that's us. Oh, this is great. He's going to share all these great words. And he's, here comes the compliment. Here comes the uh, massaging of our egos. But then the long line. You then, here it comes. Are you ready? Everybody listening? This is good. Who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, you rob temples. You brag, but you dishonor God. Whoa, what happened there? Paul does an about face. He massages them and then he nails them right between the eyes. They think they've got it all right, and yet they've got it all wrong. The problem with us and the Romans 2 individual is not our issue of orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy literally means to have the right beliefs. It's meaning that we believe the right things. Village, I hope, never has an issue with orthodoxy. I would hope that as uh, leaders come and leaders go, the one thing that will remain strong is the beliefs of Village Bible Church. But the thing that we've always got to be aware of, the thing we've always got to be on guard for, isn't that we don't have to worry about the right doctrine. But that one seems to be a little easier, especially for a church that bases its beliefs on the Word of God. But where we have to be right is not in our orthodoxy, but in our orthopraxy, the practice of the right things. We can't just believe what is right and not do what we are supposed to do with those right thoughts. The problem with Romans chapter 2 is they believed the right things. They had the embodiment of truth. They knew what was superior. They were able to understand God's will. Why? Because they had the law, the right beliefs. The problem was is based on those right beliefs, they did not live the right way. There are some here who pat themselves on the back because they attend a strong Bible teaching church that has the right beliefs. When we have preachers, they bring it. We don't water things down. We bring it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We deal with every part of it. We preach the Bible one verse at a time. These are all good things. The problem is, is if you don't live in light of that, then you can go to the most watered-down liberal church and it would be the same thing. It doesn't matter because that Word of God that's supposed to be living and active isn't living and active in your own life. Jesus hated this type of belief. Jesus hated this type of uh, uh, religion. In fact, turn in your Bibles for a moment to uh, Matthew chapter 23. If you're in the book of Romans, go to your left. A couple books to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23. At the beginning of Matthew 23, Jesus gets ready to give one of the harshest criticisms that he ever does at any point in his earthly ministry. Listen to what he says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, I think that's important. Jesus doesn't just say this to the sinners, but he calls the followers to it as well. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. Now listen to what Jesus says. I wonder what the Pharisees were thinking at that point. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see now notice in the text verse 13 woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees what does he say you what hypocrites keep going verse uh, 15 woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees and he says what verse 16 woe to you blind guides we talked about that last week verse 23 woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees he calls them again you hypocrites Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. In verse 25, you hypocrites. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And he says again, you hypocrites. He says, you're clean on the outside, you're dirty on the in. You make sure all your dishes are clean and your heart is going to hell in a handbasket. And he says, that is the sin of hypocrisy. And we can preach against the Pharisees and we can say, wow, I'm so glad that Jesus preached against them. And yet it says that he preached not just to the Pharisees, but to his followers as well. And so you would think in Romans chapter two, they would have gotten a clue that they would have said, hey, be careful of this issue of hypocrisy. Be careful that you don't fall prey to it. But notice what it says a couple different times. In verse 17, they brag. In verse uh, 20, uh, let's see here. In verse 23, they brag. They aren't being humble about their hypocrisy. They're bragging about it. They're being boastful about it. We've got a problem. Because we as Christians find ourselves like the moralist in Romans 2, given over to hypocrisy. So what happens? They pretend. They pretend to be a part of this Christian faith. They find themselves as pretenders, giving themselves over to a religion without giving themselves over to a redeemer. Let me ask you that question this morning before we get to the outline. Is this all just a religion to you? Is it all just a ploy to make sure you look good on the outside? Are you doing this just to make sure your wife or your husband are happy? Are you here because uh, you grew up in a church and your parents would want to see you in a church and that's why you're there? You do it because your parents have told you it's time to come to church. And you come and, and yeah, you smile when you're here and you talk about how great your walk with Jesus is and on the inside you don't give a rip about Christ and His church. You don't care. You're just going through the motions like that Greek actor with a mask on. Well, Paul gives some characteristics that I want to look at this morning. How do we know if we're a pretender or not? There are three things we see. First of all, pretenders are false advertisers to the world. They're false advertisers to the world. After Paul speaks about all these amazing privileges about the Jew in verses 17 through 20, it says that they had become convinced of this. They were saying, yes, we are all that you say we are, Paul. We're exactly who you have articulated. We are the guide to the blind. We are the teacher to the foolish. We do all these things. Look at what we are. It's like it's a Judaism um, infomercial. Have you ever watched an infomercial? It is one big sales pitch. This product won't, even, won't just work on your abs, but it will save people from world hunger. This this issue, uh, this cleaning product won't just help clean your kitchen, but it'll save your marriage. You know, the one that I love the most, I don't know where the guy's from, he's got this great accent, but it's this towel that just, you know, you, you, you spill a gallon of, of punch on white carpeting and this guy, he's got one of those big microphones like he's Garth Brooks at a concert and he takes this miracle chamois or something like that and he throws it on the ground. He doesn't even touch it. Well, I guess he does, he pats it. That's what he does, I wanna be right in this. He pats it and all of a sudden the great red sea on the white carpeting is gone. And then he takes it and he rings it out and there's only one gallon on the ground, but 22 gallons of <laughs> fluid come out of it. Have you ever fallen prey to those stupid infomercials? You buy the product, and it don't work. It doesn't work at all. My wife once bought me a beauty product that I won't tell you about. And she believed all that it said it would do. And the only thing it did was burn my skin off. And I'm still ugly today. It's not a time to laugh. When you put religion on the table and you start bragging and boasting about your religion, you become like an infomercial salesman because you begin to start talking in ways that don't advertise the real deal. You start advertising. You say, look at what our religion does. It guides. It brings light. It instructs. It corrects. All of that was true. The law did all those things that Paul talks about there, and Paul is right in saying that. The principle is true, but the practice was false. You may have all the right beliefs. You may have to be doing uh, um, worship and, and church all the right ways. You may be a part of the greatest church around. But if you don't live in light of what that church is preaching, if you don't live in light of how that church is responding to God's Word, then again, your religion is worthless. Notice the change that takes place in verse 21 and 22. He says, you're lying. You say you're all these things in verses 19 and 20. You're all these great things, but when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, you don't listen to your own teaching lessons. You tell people not to fall to sin, especially a big one like adultery, and you fall to it. You tell people not to live idolatrous lives, and yet you do. You talk about your relationship with God, and yet you dishonor it. Their practices were all wrong. Now let's hit each of these three that he brings up very quickly. They're given as illustrations. Nowhere in the pas- in the passage or uh, in the Bible does it spell out how these sins took place. But we see them spoken about in regards to the issue of um, teaching, uh, the teaching and not just uh, doing what you're teaching. Jesus many times spoke to the Pharisees about this. He says they don't practice what they preach. We already looked at that in Matthew 23 when it comes to adultery. In fact, there are in, in adultery, there are 30 references in the New Testament alone that speak about not committing adultery. That's a lot of sermons to preach about, to not fall to sexual sin. And yet we see that so many times people fell to that, especially within the Jewish nation. In fact, if you look in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, okay, you think you're so holy? You think you're so great? Yes, it's written. It has been written. Do not commit adultery. And they say, hey, I haven't done that, Jesus. I like this Sermon on the Mount. Preach against those that do. But he says, if you look lustfully upon a woman, you've you've lusted, you've created, you've, you've had adultery with her in your mind. Well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. Remember John chapter eight. The woman is caught in adultery. And there's a group of men who want to stone her. According to Jewish law, to be able to stone a woman caught in adultery meant that there needed to be witnesses at least two or three witnesses to swear that she was in fact an adulterer. I don't know about you, but it is hard to be a witness of someone committing adultery. That doesn't just happen out in in plain view of the public. And Jesus comes along and he sees this woman on the ground ready to be stoned. The picture is given that all these men have stones in their hands. And Jesus says, all right, you want to stone her? Yes, she deserves stoning. So you who do not have that sin cast the first stone. We don't think about that. Because what it would take, it would take a witness who had witnessed what had happened. So who of you has witnessed this? One of the commentaries said, the reason why every stone fell out of the hand of those stone throwers was because it may have been the same men who committed adultery with her. Ooh. Wow, Jesus might have gotten to the point. Remember, he gets down on his hands and knees and he writes in there. I wonder if he wrote down the names of the people that had shared her bed. And wonder stones fell. Remember the story of Judah in the Bible? He's walking uh, on 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 a journey and there's a prostitute on the side of the road and he's feeling like he wants to get lucky that night. I don't mean to be crass, and so he goes and he sleeps with her. And he, if I remember the story correctly, uh, he doesn't have anything to give her. Being a prostitute, she needed to be paid. And he gives her a ring. Now, he doesn't know who she is. She's just a woman. Just to take care of his uh, sexual fantasies. And what happens? He learns that it is a relative of his. And he finds out that she's uh, pregnant. and He's enraged. And he says, how dare you? Who do you think you are to live this way? You should be condemned. Who is the man that you were with that did such a thing? And she says, here's his ring and here's his clothes. And whose are they? Judas. David. David sleeps with a woman named Bathsheba, commits adultery with her, kills her husband, And a year later, a man by the name of Nathan comes, a prophet of the Lord into the courts of David. And he speaks of a man, a farmer, who has very little, just one one little lamb in his flock. And then there's this great farmer who has all the little sheep and all the lambs that you could ever have. And what does that big farmer do? He goes and he steals the one from the flock. And the Bible says David was enraged. He says, bring me that man and I will give him his just due. How can a farmer like that who has everything take only the only lamb that that little farmer has? And Nathan looks at him and I wonder what Nathan was thinking as he heard his king pontificate about how angry he was about a sin of stealing a lamb, that's small potatoes. And he looks at David and he says, you're the man. You had all these wives. You have all these concubines. You have everything a king would ever want. And you go to a little man named Uriah who has one wife, a wife that he loved, a wife that he cared for, a wife that he did everything. And you had all that you could have ever asked for and you take one. And the Bible says David was enraged. You don't think that people after God's own heart can be false advertisers and hypocrites? David was what are you advertising to the world this morning? What are you sharing with other people? Oh, we're like those bottles of soap that come in smaller containers and yet you, say, you pay the same price. You know what I'm talking about? And on the, on the label, it says new and improved, condensed version. And you look, oh, well, it's new and improved. So I, I only get half the amount of soap now, but it says that it works twice as well. We as Christians find ourselves in that way all the time. What we do is nothing changes on the inside, but we put a new label on new and changed, new and transformed. And yet we're dirty on the end. We're hypocrites. The second thing we see this morning is pretenders make flawed assessments, they make flawed assessments about themselves. Look at what the text says in verse 23. It says, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? They must have said, how are we doing that? Now, now, you said that we've committed adultery. You say that we've um, uh, not practiced what we preach. You say that we steal. They had done all these things. In fact, Josephus, the uh, historian of Paul's contemporary, speaks about how the Jewish people, this guy isn't a believer, Josephus. And he's seen a lot of things in his world, if you will. He's the editorial writer for the Jerusalem Times. And he has talks about in his antiquities This idea that Jewish people literally would go and rob temples, not their own temple, but the pagan temples. And what they would do is they would see these um, uh, wonderful artifacts and and treasured precious metals that were built up as shrines for their gods. And what they said is, hey, they don't deserve that. They shouldn't have that. And so what they would do is they would go and they would steal those things and give them to their temple. That seems a little backhanded. I thought about that and I said, it kind of reminds me of people who hate abortion and under the, gu- the guise of Christianity go and blow up abortion clinics. That seems wrong to stop the death of, of a child. You, you kill others. Right? That's hypocrisy. And yet we have people that call themselves Christians and in fact are not because they do the exact thing that their law, the word of God, tells them not to do. They make flawed assessments about themselves. This is what gives us a bad rap as Christians. Instead of living humble lives, we're like the moral Jew and we brag about how holy we are. We don't fall to those things. We don't do that. We don't let our kids be a part of that. And what we do is create the sin of legalism. Look how holy I am. Look at how great I am. Look how great my walk with Jesus is. And the problem is, is their assessment is all wrong. Notice what it says. Just write this passage in your Bible, Isaiah 29. Uh, Write it in your outline, not in your Bible. Isaiah 29, verse 13. This is what it says. The Lord says, The people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. The text says that they have a good talk. They talk a good game. They posture yourselves, this this idea of brag. Remember last week we looked at that word brag or boast. It literally means to posture yourself in a certain way based on privileges or position. They say, look, look how how far I've come, how I've arrived. And yet they're wrong. Here's the reason. The moralist looks at his life and he says, I deserve an A, but why? Because he looks at someone else and he says, because I'm not like you them. That's flawed. Remember the uh, uh, Pharisee who Jesus speaks about, who comes into the synagogue and he comes and in front of everybody prays, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am not an adulterer, that I am not a fornicator, that I am not a robber. I'm so thankful I'm not that I give a 10th of all that I have. What does he base that all on? I'm not like who? Them. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a robber. So what does he do? He's the Roman two guy. And what does he pray? Lord, I thank you. I am not the gross sinners of Romans one. Oh Lord, I'm so good. And they're so bad. And what does the taxpayer tax collector do? He gets up and he beats his chest and he says, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. What's the difference between those two responses? Issue number one, the pretender bases himself on other people. A genuine Christian bases his status upon God and God alone. You can pass any test based on someone else's achievements. You can always find someone who's dumber than you. You can always find someone who's uglier than you. You can always find someone who's lazier than you. But that isn't the test that we have when we get to heaven We will not stand before god and say well. Hey, I did better than so-and-so did I didn't live the life like my neighbor did so I should be able to be in heaven. No The response from god will be no I didn't base on a curve. I didn't base on john or bill or fred or ted I based on the person and work of jesus christ Who walked on the earth and did not sin? How do you do according to that? These people make false assessments of themselves. Now, how do we guard against that? Make right right assessments. Go to this Word. The Bible says that we are to look into the Word of God like it is a mirror, the book of James says. We're to look deeply and intently into the Word. Why? It's a mirror. You got up this morning and there were a lot of imperfections. You woke up and your hair was all out of place. You woke up and your eyes were sagging a lot more than they should be. You woke up and you noticed that you got some sunspots and blotches. And uh, men, we don't usually do much with it. We just try to make work on our personalities. They'll give up on the areas of looks that we don't have. Women, they're smarter. They say, you know what? Let's cover these things up. But how do we do that? We look in a mirror and we say, where do I need to fix the imperfections of my life? Well, if you look at someone else in the mirror and you say, well, I look better than them. You have a false assessment because you're still dealing with the issues that you have before you. But if you look into God's word, his perfect word, it's gonna say, fix this, move that, rearrange this, take care of that. And you will see that God's word will give you a right assessment. We can't grade on a curve. Notice what, how God judges religion. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to James. To James. James chapter 1. I want you to write these things down in your outline. I could preach another message on this passage alone, but I won't. I will just give you three things that James tells us. James had the same problem with the people that he was sharing with in James 1.26. He says, if anyone considers himself religious. That's the problem. You make the assessment and you say, yeah, I've looked at my life and I'm religious. That's a good thing. But notice what he says. If you consider yourself religious, meaning you, you've arrived in the eyes of God, but do not keep a tight rein on your tongue. You deceive yourself and your religion is, share it with me, worthless. Worthless you're wasting your time. Now notice what he says. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There are three things that James tells us that is a good faith. Filled religion. Number one, it has to do with your conversation. Keep a tight rein on your tongue. He'll deal with that later in the text, but he says your conversation. Do you talk like a Christian? Do the things that come out of your mouth articulate that you are being led by the Spirit of God? You want a pure religion? Your conversation needs to be right. Number two, your compassion needs to be right. He says, you want to have a religion that God accepts? Then look after those who need to be looked after. Orphans and widows in their distress. Look after them. Take care of them. Minister to them. Make sure you uh, serve your neighbor as you would want to be served yourself. Finally, your conduct. He says, "My the religion that's pure and faultless, your compassion, look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Pure religion, true Christianity is a three-question test. Your conversation, your compassion, and your conduct. How well do you do at those things? Do you sing praises on Sunday and talk like a sailor on Monday? Do you give large amounts of money to the benevolence and then speak about people that are hurting and say they, they just are lazy? They, they, they just don't uh, work hard. They don't do what they're supposed to. They could take care of their own problems. We don't need to take care of them. Is that your thought on other days? Is your conduct on Sunday to look right and holy and just and Christian and then to live like H-E-double hockey sticks the rest of the week? You failed the test then. And the Bible says your faith is worthless. Should be thrown out, it's trash. We can't just pride ourselves in how we assess ourselves. We have to be assessed by God and his standard. Finally, pretenders give unbelievers the freedom, the freedom to accuse God of hypocrisy. Look at verse 24. These guys think they've got it all figured out. They think they're doing all right. They think they're the poster children of being good and holy. And this is what the text says. You who brag about about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The answer is yes. And notice how he says it. As it is written, he quotes a passage of Scripture here. He says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember the story of David and Nathan? It says that the people were mocking the God of Israel. Why? Because the king, King David... Mr. Holy Roller himself, Mr. Hey, no one should talk bad about my God, especially that big ugly dude named Goliath. I ain't going to let that happen. And so I'm going to destroy this man. I'm going to deal with him. This same guy that spoke all these wonderful things about God, that God's on his side, that God does all these great things. It says that he brought defilement. He brought blasphemy to the house of Israel because of his sin you say well how is that david never says bad things about god he doesn't blaspheme the name of god notice when we pretend to be believers and when we judge people for the similar things that they do we allow unbelievers to respond and the response is to make an assessment themselves you make a false assessment about who you are people will make a false assessment about who you proclaim and what happens they start looking at god and saying what kind of god do they serve let me tell you something when I fall to sin and I talk one way from the pulpit and live another way in my week three things will happen number one I will bring defilement and blasphemy if you will it's the wrong term blasphemy is for God I bring a reproach a better term to my family because my family is known to be a Christian family We're a family of preachers. We're proclaimers of God's good news and his word. We proclaim these things. But if I was to to turn and live a life of hypocrisy and do the very things that I preach against, I would destroy my family's name, at least for a time. The story is told of a man named Samuel Mudd. You may not know who Samuel Mudd is, but you've heard that uh, the phrase, his name is Mudd. Samuel Mudd was the physician who lived in Virginia at the end of the Civil War, who a man in April, I believe it was April 15th, comes with a broken leg. That man's name is, and the rest of the story, John Wilkes Booth. John Wilkes Booth had a broken leg. Samuel Mudd doesn't know anything about John Wilkes Booth killing President Lincoln because there's no CNN. And so what does Samuel Mudd do? He finds out that this man has a broken leg. As a physician, he, he fixes uh, John Wilkes Booth's leg. And what happens? John Wilkes takes off. And that's the only connection that Samuel Mudd had to John Wilkes Booth. But Samuel Mudd would be put on trial. And for three years, Samuel Mudd's name would become Mudd until he would be acquitted that he knew nothing of the whole conspiracy to kill Abraham Lincoln. The problem is to this day the mud family continues to try to clean up their name. Why? Because his name is mud. Now you're all that much smarter because you came to church. A lot of us have made our name mud because we fall to sin and hypocrisy. I live a hypocritical life, my church will be judged. Doesn't Tim go and doesn't he preach and doesn't he elder at Village Bible Church? Did you hear what he said? Do you you see what he watches? Do you see how he treats his family? How can he condone such activity? What kind of church does he go to? Didn't he say they're a Bible-believing church? Didn't they say they do things by the book? How can he act like that? I bring reproach to the church. People make assessments about this place that are untrue, I might add. But worst of all, God is accused. You call yourself a follower of God. You put a fish on the back of your bumper. You do all these things that say you're a believer and you go out and you live contrary to that. You know what will happen? People will say, I don't want anything to do with that God. What kind of people are they? If that's your God, I don't want nothing to do with him. Because he's a hypocrite himself. Because you say you're acting like your God. You're living like him. And yet you're not, I will tell you one of the saddest commentaries I've had as a caterer is hearing my employees, unbelievers come back, knowing that they're catering for Christians and they come back and say, those were the rudest people we've ever been a part of. They were the rudest. They were mean. They were hurtful. They bossed us around. They, they yelled at us. And they don't even know at times they are. The worst thing is when you go to churches and you cater, and I know them to be good, strong churches, and they have, they're filled with some of the biggest jerks around. You ask my people at, at work who they hate catering for? Christians. That's, that's not, they're not on, a, they, they're not on a, a witch hunt. They're just telling you like they see it. We've got a hypocrisy problem in the evangelical world. We've got to fix it. God is accused because He is the one who we point to very quick story couple about a, uh eight months ago. my crew was driving of course we've got a name on everything that we drive you know so you can't really do much without people uh being being able to know who you are and one day uh something had come off one of our trailers. And at a stop sign, one of my crews thought it would be good to just jump out real quick and pick up what had come out of the trailer. And at the stop sign, the guy gets out and he picks it up. And the person behind them honks their horn, telling my guys to get moving. That's the logical thing that would happen. Maybe they're a little impatient. That's okay. One of my crew guys doesn't like that the person's honked behind them. And he gives them the one finger salute. I'm not going to go any farther than that. You know what it is, no matter how religious you think you are. I didn't know the person. I wasn't even in the vehicle at the time. But a local pastor's wife was working the corner at a corner vegetable stand. And she saw all of it unfold. And I was told to my horror, Hey, one of your guys flicked off this other person. And I was broken hearted. Why? Because my name's written all over that. And people know that Tim is a Christian. And so what happened? The one who works for me, who represents me, defamed my name. I went and told that employee, I said, how are you going to fix it? He says, I don't know. I said, you're going to go stand on that corner and apologize to every person who drives by, Was I the, were you the one that I flicked off? Because if you were, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He says, well, why would I do that? Because I said, you're gonna have to fix my name because you've ruined my name. This is not how I live. This is not what I do. You didn't learn this from me. Understand folks, when we live hypocritical lives, we don't do anything more than destroy the name of God. People say, I don't want your God. I don't want him. If that's what he is, If that's who he is, a bunch of hypocrisy, I don't want it. You know, uh, a study was once done of who the greatest hypocrites are. The two that gained the most votes were politicians and Christians. We really want to be linked with politicians when it comes to integrity? We really want that? What do we do? Let's close with this. Give me two minutes and we're done. How How do we keep from falling prey to a life of pretending? Number one, put away all hypocrisy. Write that down. Put away all hypocrisy. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us this. Rid yourself, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. What does Peter say? Get rid of that garbage out of your life. Do whatever you have to. Jesus' name is at stake. Kill it. Get rid of it in any way. Destroy it. It is a cancer. Eradicate it. That's what you do. You got hypocrisy in your life? You assess yourself and say, wow, Tim, you're right. I've got some issues of hypocrisy in my life. Get rid of it. Because if you don't, you're destroying the name of God. Number two, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. You're going to judge people. You better make sure that you aren't looking at the speck in someone else's eye while you've got a big log in your eye. You're going to talk about someone's sin, you better deal with your sin first. You're going to tell people how bad they live, you better be living a good life. Practice what you preach, let your walk match your talk. The old adage my father used to tell us boys. Number three, praise God in your worship and your walk. Christians are great at coming and worshiping God and singing praises to God, but God doesn't just say that. Remember in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 11 and 12, he says, I don't need the blood of rams. I don't need all these sacrifices. I don't need all that. I don't get anything out of that. Your hearts are far from me. Then Paul says in Romans 12, 1, offer your bodies not just your worship, but offer your activities, all that you do as a living sacrifice so this is good and this is pleasing and it's your spiritual act of worship. Does your worship on Sunday, does it parallel the worship that you do on Monday through Saturday? If not, you're living a life of hypocrisy. Number four, remember this. People are watching when you rise and when you fall. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. People are watching you. Your neighbors are watching. Your family's watching. They're not just watching you as you come home on Sunday, but they're watching you all the time. The story is told of a man who crashes into a car in a parking lot, but the owner of that car is not there. And so he gets out and he writes a note because everybody's watching. And of course, if he doesn't do that, he's gonna be called by the cops. And so he gets out and on the windshield, he writes this note. Yes, I hit your car. And yes, other people witnessed it. So, I'm writing this note to tell you that I will not tell you my name or who I am or my insurance company's information. I hit you, but I don't want to do anything about it. Put, the wind, put it behind the windshield wiper and walked away. And what did people think? That's a good man. That's a man of integrity. That's a man they're watching. But little did they know that he was lying. And you say, you know what? I fooled everybody. Look at verse 16. God will judge the secret hearts of men on the day of judgment. You think you got away with hypocrisy today? God will judge you in the day to come. Joshua has a little issue in his life, my little Joshua. We have four sons in our family, Noah, Joshua, Luke, and Jimmy. Jimmy lives in the basement, in the closet. We don't know Jimmy all that well. But Jimmy is the uh, Dr. Hyde of Joshua. or uh, Yeah, Dr. Hyde of of Joshua. Now I ask Joshua all the time, Joshua, are you Jimmy? He says, no, Daddy, I'm not Jimmy. I said, "Uh, Joshua, you sure you're not Jimmy? No, I'm not Jimmy. Joshua will go downstairs and play with his toys in the basement and he'll leave every light on. I mean, our electric meter is going, you could slice meat on that thing, it moves so fast. And so, what happens? I know Josh was downstairs, and I said, Josh, you left all the lights on. No, Daddy, I didn't. It was Jimmy. It was Jimmy. Joshua was a lot, lot like Christians. We don't want to be called something that we're not. But boy, when it's convenient, we blame, we point our fingers, and we say it was someone else. And yet, the problem is. It's not someone else. It's the same person with a split personality. And that split personality is the issue of hypocrisy. Let's stop being pretenders. Let's give it to God. Let's go to prayer. Father God, what a passage. What a passage. What a text. Oh, we sin, Father. We sin so many times. And yet you are so faithful. We lie and you tell the truth. We pretend and you're for real. Lord, rid us of this. Rid us of this now. While we are quiet in prayer, give us the opportunity now by your spirit to make a vow. I will not live like that anymore. I'm not going to live one way and talk another. Oh, Lord, rid this ailment from Village Bible Church once and for all. That just like you, we will speak rightly. We will do justly. And we will walk humbly before our God. And so when we look at the world, we will look at the world with grace and mercy and love. And even when we judge, even when we discipline, we will do it like a loving father who loves his children disciplines them. Oh Lord, help us to not live this way. Your name is at stake. And we want nothing more than to bring glory and honor to you. We give it to you and we say thank you in Jesus name. Amen.